So we're on the uh, fourth Satipatthana, and uh, this is the uh, section on hindrances, and this particular part is called The Importance of Recognizing the Hindrances. According to the discourses, if a hindrance is present and one doesn't recognize it, one is mismeditating. That's miss with one S, not Mr. Meditating. So it's mismeditating or meditating incorrectly. A form of practice the Buddha did not approve of. But if one does recognize the presence of a hindrance and contemplates it as a satipatthana meditation, one's practice will lead to the purification of the mind. That's also a frequent um, theme of the forest tradition and uh, Lumpur Sumato's uh, uh, teachings. Um, would often call the five hindrances the five teachers or the five ajans. And so that uh, that's a, a very common theme, not that you're praising them to be developed and to be <laughs> increased, but rather the, um, uh, the uh, correct and skillful working with the, the nivaranas, the five hindrances, uh, produces a great deal of, of insight. And uh, one of the most... Um, uh, telling comments of, of Lumpo Cha when somebody, um, he probably said it quite a few times, when somebody remarked, you know, Lumpo, you're so incredibly wise, you must have uh, read all the scriptures or studied the Abhidhamma, and he said, um, no, if the, re- the only reason I have any wisdom is because I had such enormous hindrances, that my defilements were so great and so comprehensive that um, I had to develop a lot of wisdom in order to, to deal with them wasn't the answer they were expecting. That uh, He was not an Abhidhamma expert in terms of spending a lot of time in the library, but rather it was um, through having to work through the uh, defilements, the hindrances, these uh, uh, afflictive states of mind that were what had uh, brought about the development of wisdom. A passage in the Anguttara Nikaya demonstrates the importance of clearly recognizing mental defilements for what they are. This discourse reports the monk Anuruddha complaining to his friend Sariputta that, despite concentrative attainments, unshaken energy, and well-established mindfulness, he was unable to break through to full realization. In reply, Sariputta pointed out that Anuruddha's boasting of concentration attainments was nothing but a manifestation of conceit. His unshaken energy was simply restlessness, and his concern about not yet having awakened was just worry. Helped by his friend to recognize these as hindrances, Anuruddha was soon able to overcome them and achieve realization. So I thought I might read that particular passage for you. It's in the um, uh, Anguttara Nikaya. It's in the um, Book of the Threes and uh, Sutta number 128. Then Venerable Anuruddha went to where Venerable Sariputta was staying and, on arrival, greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings, he sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Sariputta, By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. My energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging. The Venerable Sariputta replies, My friend, when the thought occurs to you, by means of the divine eye purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos, that is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my energy is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness is established and unshaken, my body is calm and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness. That is related to your restlessness. When the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if, abandoning these three qualities, Not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element, 
the Amata Adatu. So after that, Venerable Anuruddha, abandoning those three qualities, not attending to those three qualities, conceit, uh, restlessness, and um, anxiety. Uh, so mana, uh, udacha, and um, uh, anxiety. I'm not sure. Uh, I think that's... Um, I'd have to look up the Pali for that one. Uh, dwelling alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute, he in no long time reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life, for which people rightly go forth from home into homelessness. So that uh, also, uh, his, uh, he was obviously quite uh, an accomplished meditator and someone who had some uh, great spiritual maturity, but that uh, it also represents that the, the, even those subtle hindrances of, of trying and, and doing and getting and, and becoming, and that uh, those were highlighted by Venerable Sariputta. And what he um, encourages is just to notice what your, your mind is creating, what the that um uh that uh doingness and uh and anxiety and uh, the identification the conceit in relationship to your spiritual efforts notice what that's creating and when you let go of that uh that desire to become and to be and to do then boom <laughs> then the uh there's the realization of the the deathless so uh, it's a very very significant helpful sutta so that's number 128 in the Book of the Threes. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practiced in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Several discourses beautifully illustrate the powerful effect of this simple act of recognition by describing how the tempter, Mara, who often acts as a personification of the five hindrances, loses his powers as soon as he is recognized. So the, and the Buddha often says, I know you, Mara, when Mara is say, trying to pull the Buddha into um, anxiety or fear or a desire in some, in some form. The Buddha says, I know you, Mara. Don't think I don't know you, Mara. I know you. <laughs> The ingenuity of this approach of bare recognition can be illustrated by considering the case of anger from a medical perspective. The arising of anger leads to an increase in the release of adrenaline, and such an increase in adrenaline will in turn further stimulate the anger. The presence of non-reactive sati, mindfulness, puts a break on this vicious cycle. By simply remaining receptively aware of a state of anger, neither the physical reaction nor the mental proliferation is given scope. If, on the other hand, one abandons the balanced state of awareness and resents or condemns the arisen anger, the act of condemnation, so like hating yourself for being angry or trying to suppress the angry feeling, or, you know, being worried that you're... you're being that you're feeling angry when you're supposed to be a good Buddhist and so on. <clears throat> the condemnation becomes just another ma manifestation of aversion. The vicious cycle of anger continues, albeit with a different object. So rather than being angry about the noise outside the temple, you get angry with yourself for, for being angry, <laughs> or upset and uh, uh, negative towards yourself for having that, that emotion uh, as an experience. Once the hindrances are at least temporarily removed, the alternative aspect of contemplating the hindrances becomes relevant. Awareness of their absence. So, the, uh, noticing that uh, the hindrances, when it's faded away, you can contemplate, oh look, there's no anger here now, well, there's no lust, or there's no um, laziness, dullness. In several expositions of the gradual path, such absence of the hindrances forms the starting point for a causal sequence that leads via delight, joy, tranquility, and happiness, that's pamoja, piti, pasadhi, and sukha, to concentration, samadhi, and the attainment of absorption. The instruction in this context is, quote, 
to contemplate the disappearance of the five hindrances within oneself. Unquote. And so that's a, an example of that is a, the Diga Nikaya um, in the Samanya Pala Sutta, the second discourse in the Diga, and in the uh, uh, let's see the it's at uh, paragraph number seventy-five that uh, he describes that particular sequence how knowing the hindrances have faded away that the uh, the mind is free of of uh, sense desire is free of ill will is free of dullness and and so forth then that very freedom from the presence of the hindrances that leads to pamoja or or delight that leads uh, to rapture or piti uh, joy and that joy leads to tranquility tranquility then leads to contentment contentment then leads to uh, concentration and concentration to um, the attainment of, of, uh, of um, uh, absorption in that particular instance. This suggests a positive act of recognizing and even rejoicing in the absence of the hindrances, which then paves the way for deep concentration. Such a conscious act of recognizing and rejoicing in the absence of the hindrances is vividly illustrated in the second set of similes mentioned above, which compare this state of freedom from, uh, the, sorry, which compare this state of mental freedom to freedom from debt, from disease, imprisonment, slavery, and danger. And in that sutta, the Samanyapala Sutta, that that paragraph, then uh, that that section, it describes each of those in the same way as the um, Maha Asapura Sutta, that discourse. Uh, Sutta number 39 in the middle length discourses these is the same sequence so that the uh, sen uh, freedom from sense desire is like being free of, of a debt, having paid off a debt. Uh, freedom from ill will is like having recovered from a disease. Uh, freedom from uh, sloth and torpor, from dullness, is like being let out of, of, of jail. Uh, the freedom from restlessness and worry, Udacha Kukucha, is uh, compared to being um, having been a slave and being released from slavery. And then the last one, uh, uh, getting beyond doubt, being free of vichikicha, of doubt, uh, is uh, compared to having crossed a dangerous desert and arriving at comfort and safety on the other side. Several discourses refer to such a tranquil state of mind, temporarily unaffected by any hindrance or mental defilement, as luminous, pabasara. According to a passage in the Anguttara Nikaya, to come to know this luminous nature of the mind is in fact an important requirement for the development of mind, citta-pavana. And uh, that, he gives it just a brief mention there, but that's also a very um, central teaching in the forest tradition, the pabasara citta. And... Um, so it's often quoted by uh, uh, Venerable Ajahn Man uh, and uh, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Tate, and many different uh, uh, Ajahns of the uh, forest tradition. And it's uh, the particular is a short sutta, and it comes in the Book of the Ones in the Anguttara, the numerical discourses. Well, and there's two suttas side by side. Uh, so it's suttas number 61 and 62 in the Book of the Ones. Bhikkhus. This mind is radiant, but it doesn't show its radiance because passing defilements come and obscure it. The unwise ordinary person does not understand this as it is. Therefore, there is no mind development, that's Chittapavana, in the unwise ordinary person. Because this mind is radiant, it shows its radiance when it is unobscured by passing defilements. The wise, noble disciple understands this as it is. Therefore, there is mind development in the wise, noble disciple. And the Pali for that the passage about the mind is radiant is Pabasara midang bikkhove chitang tanchako akandukehi upakile sehi upakilitang So, uh, and the word akandukehi means they are visitors, like a uh, Someone who's just come to visit the monastery is an, uh, is an akantuka. They're, they're just a visitor. They're like a passing, um, so a, a passing stranger or someone who's just dropped in. They're, they're not kind of a, it, it's not their place. And so that uh, that particular passage is a, like a, a, 
a central teaching and a very common theme in the forest tradition talking that about the the mind's intrinsic nature is radiant is pure uh, is uh, uh, all uh, accommodating but then defilements like the hindrances sense desire ill will um, and so forth fear and jealousy all the kinds of different um, afflictive emotional states these are uh, considered uh, just passing uh, defilements and here's a a comment by Venerable Achan Man. This is from A Heart Released. The mind is something more radiant than anything else can be. But because counterfeits, passing defilements, come and obscure it, it loses its radiance, like the sun when obscured by clouds. Don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. So, meditators, when they know in this manner, should do away with these counterfeits by analyzing them shrewdly. When they develop the mind to the stage of the primal mind, this will mean that all counterfeits are destroyed, or rather, counterfeit things won't be able to reach into the primal mind, because the bridge making the connection will have been destroyed. Even though the mind may then still have to come into contact with the preoccupations of the world, its contact will be like that of a bead of water rolling over a lotus leaf. So there's a, another uh, passage um, that is very similar to that. It comes in the Agivachagota Sutta, the discourse of the, uh, about fire, to Vachagota. And that uh, is a favorite passage of mine, which I can find for you here in a moment. So this is a, the Buddha is speaking to Vachagota, and um, Vacha has been asking the Buddha about what happens to an enlightened being after the death of the body. Where do they go? Where do they reappear? And the Buddha says, reappear uh, does not apply. And then Vajrakota says, well, do they not reappear? And the Buddha says, uh, does not reappear does not apply. Then, being India and full of philosophers, then Vajrakota says, well, do they both reappear and not reappear? And the Buddha says, both reappear and not reappear does not apply. And, of course, to complete the set, he says, well, do they neither reappear nor not reappear? which is a bit like the had-had <laughs> exposition of yesterday. So they neither reappear nor not reappear. The Buddha says that doesn't apply either. And then he says, Vacha, uh, suppose... Uh, the, uh, uh, so then Vacha Gautra is confused. And he says, here I am bewildered, Master Gautama, here I am confused. The small degree of understanding which had come from our earlier conversations has now disappeared. The Buddha replies, Certainly you are bewildered, Vacha. Certainly you are confused. This Dhamma is deep, Vacha. It is hard to see and hard to understand. Peaceful, sublime, and beyond the scope of mere reasoning. Subtle, only to be experienced by the wise. It is difficult for those with other views who follow other teachings, other aims, and other teachers to understand. As this is so, I'll ask you some questions. Please ask them, answer them as you like. What do you think, Vacha? Suppose a fire were burning here in front of you. Would you know that there is a fire burning in front of me? I would, Master Gautama. And suppose someone were to ask you, Vacha, this fire burning in front of you, what is it burning dependent on? Thus asked, how would you reply? I would reply, this fire burning in front of me is burning dependent on grass and sticks. Now, if the fire burning in front of you were to go out, would you know that this fire that was burning in front of me has gone out? I would, Master Godama. And suppose someone were to ask you, this fire that was in front of you and that has now gone out, in which direction has it gone? To the east, to the west, to the south or the north? Being asked thus, how would you answer? That does not apply, Master Gautama. 
The fire burned dependent on fuel of grass and sticks. When its fuel is used up, if no more fuel is added to it, it is simply reckoned as gone out, nibuto. Even so, Vacha, and this is the passage I was referring to, the Tathagata has abandoned any material form by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. He has cut it off at the root, made it like a palm tree stump, deprived it of the conditions for existence, and rendered it incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, Vacha. He is profound, boundless, unfathomable like the ocean. The term reappears does not apply. The term does not reappear does not apply. The term both reappears and does not reappear does not apply. The term neither reappears nor does not reappear does not apply. So too with any feeling, any perception, any mental formations, any consciousness. So that, um, as uh, Venerable Ajahn Man puts it in that that passage, you know that the that the the, uh, the bridge has been broken, as it were. Um, that um, let's see where is it. The uh, the bridge making the connection will have been destroyed, so that the the primal mind we can say that as the the Tathagata or the the awake mind, the knowing mind. So even though it's in contact with perceptions, forms, feelings, the, the material world, it knows the world, as, I, as it's described in this passage. Uh, the Tathagata has abandoned any material form by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. So any way of reckoning or saying uh, this, uh, the, the mind is, is this in terms of material form or perception, uh, it, that can't describe it. It can't. Uh, it can't uh, say represent it in any uh, accurate way. So there is the awareness. There's the knowing, but you can't say that is anything. You can't give it any kind of form, or you can't. Con the mind can't con conceive it as a, a thing, or a structure, or a form, or a person, or a, a anywhere, or a, 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 in a, any way, shape, or form. So one, uh, the Tathagata has abandoned any material form by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. He's cut it off at the root, made it like a palm tree stump, deprived it of the conditions for existence, and rendered it incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. Vacha, he is profound, boundless, unfathomable like the ocean. So to, to me, that's a very beautiful and helpful uh, expression of um, that quality of, of awareness, so that then subjectively that's experienced as radiance. You can say that uh, from that knowing side, you can say it's experienced as radiance, as spaciousness, as freedom, um, a kind of unconfined uh, 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 openness, brightness, and awareness. Those qualities are, are all present. Um, but then as soon as the conceiving mind says, I am the radiant mind, that's what I am. You know, I'm pure awareness, that's the real me. <laughs> that's just the concept. That's the, the thinking mind creating an, an I am. And that's uh, just as Sariputta said to Anuruddha, that's just your conceit. <laughs> there's a conceiving, that there's a uh, a, a being is, is uh, apparently being created there. So the the practice and why this uh, that that uh, teaching about the um, radiant mind is uh, such a, a such centrality in the forest tradition, and also very much a theme of of Lumpur Sumedho's Lumpur Cha's teaching is is all about being that knowing, embodying that that quality of awakened awareness without creating a a, a concept, without creating an I and a me and a mine around that. And so this, um, uh, it's not even as though the hindrances are necessarily completely absent, or the or perceptions, or the uh, or the experience of the world, but rather there is a completely uh, unbiased and clear knowing. Oh, this is the feeling of liking. This is the feeling of disliking. This is this is this particular state or perception. Here it is. It, it's just this. Uh, 
Any questions? Yes, Andreas, you've got a furrowed brow. <laughs> What's your question? Would uh, in a totally liberated mind, the mindfulness also be so pure and con- continuous that there would be continuous awareness always of the feelings and the perceptions? Or would one still have to um, deliberately direct the mind? And can, a, can a liberated mind still be unmindful at times or the Buddha's um, when he talks about it it, uh, as an interesting um, uh, description I think it's in the Majima in the um, when he's talking about a particular teacher who claims to be omniscient to like to know all things at all times and the Buddha says it's impossible you can't you can't omniscience is, is not possible he said uh, if I direct my attention towards a knowable object, then I know it. But uh, if I don't turn my attention to it, I don't know it. So that that but that claim uh, of, of that I think it was Pakuda Kachayana claimed to be omniscient all the time. He said, "No, that's uh, that's impossible. You can't can't do that." But he would say, you know, if he directs his mind to to something, then he, he'll know it. So it's also the 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 um, the case that sometimes the Buddha makes a. Um, a statement or, or um, makes a decision that then leads to difficulties. And so many of the Vinaya rules, they had like four or five revisions where he sets a rule and then someone mishandles it or misunderstands it and then he kind of lays down an extra condition and an extra one and an extra one and an extra one. So there's like um, a whole iteration, a whole sequence of different versions of, of the rule or qualifications of it that say uh, that explains it because of people misreading it or mis- misunderstanding it. So um, that's a, uh, the, what you have there as an example for the, for the scriptures, but also you can, uh, you can see that uh, it's... Uh, that, that, well, to me, that makes a lot of practical sense. And that the, the Buddha claimed that um, you know, he could, if he wanted to know something, he would know it, but he was not uh, fully conscious of, of everything at all times. So he slept, you know, he would lie down and... And, and sleep, he would sleep mindfully, but he would be asleep. Mm-hmm. So that that... Um, uh, and then sometimes, and there was one of those occasions when Mara came along and said, who do you think you are? You claim to be fully enlightened and you're lying down to have a nap in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. And then the Buddha says, Mara, <laughs> I, I know you. And he says, it's the hot season and there's, there's, uh, it's absolutely blameless during the, during the hot season uh, in the afternoon to put to mindfully put my head on the pillow and to mindfully fall asleep and setting in, in place the time to wake up so that there is there is no uh, nothing there's no defilement involved in mindfully going to sleep and mindfully waking up even though Mara is coming along to say you know what a what a lazy slob <laughs> and in that in those instances you can you can think of Mara as being not just an external being, like a kind of uh, a sort of stage villain with a curly moustache. You know, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the uh, the kind of um, uh, n- nagging, worrying, self-critical mind. You know, it's just it's in a way it's a mythological representation of the, of, of defilements arising in the Buddha's mind, but can find no foothold. Like when he's sitting up in the mountains and Mara comes along and, and, well, the thought arises in the Buddha's mind, you know, if I wanted to, I could turn the entire Himalayan mountain range into solid gold. And then Mara comes along and says, yes, that's a great idea. (laughs) And think of the power that you'd have, you know, you'd be so rich. And then the Buddha says, I know you, Mara. Uh, And even twice that amount would not be enough for one man's greed. So, but it it can be... um, is represented as Mara coming along as a sort of separate entity, but also it can be like, oh, you know, I could turn the whole Himalayas. It's it's also to me, it's a, it's a representing that sort of defiled thought arising in the Buddha's mind, but it never has a foothold. It never has any kind of um, landing place, and so that uh, that uh, <clears throat> there's there's a, an awareness you know, of that as it arises. That's how I understand it, anyway. So the next section is called The Conditions for Presence or Absence of a Hindrance. After the first stage of recognizing the presence or absence of a hindrance, 
The second stage of the same contemplation follows. So that in that Satipatthana description you have knowing the hindrance as it's arising, knowing, as it's, and knowing the hindrance as it's faded away. The second stage of the same contemplation follows. Awareness of the conditions that have led to the arising of a hindrance and that assist in removing an arisen hindrance and that prevent future arising of a hindrance. Uh, so that uh, that's the second part of it. It's not just knowing whether a hindrance is present or whether it's absent, but then the kind of conditionality of it. Awareness of, the, of what led to it, um, uh, awareness of what's going to help um, to remove uh, an arisen hindrance, and what's going to help prevent the future arising of that same hindrance. The task of sati during this second stage follows a progressive pattern, proceeding from diagnosis via cure to prevention, so using a kind of medical model, so that um, if it's arising, knowing the conditions that led to its arising, okay, where did it come from, what caused this? If it's present, knowing the conditions that lead to its removal, okay, if that's uh, already there, and what's going to lead it to help it to end? And then if it's ended, if it's removed, knowing the, the conditions or the way to prevent it from arising again in the future. By turning a hindrance into an object of meditation, the mere presence of awareness can often lead to dispelling the hindrance in question. Should bare awareness not suffice, more specific antidotes are required. In this case, sati has the task of supervising the measures undertaken for removing the hindrance by providing a clear picture of the actual situation, without, however, getting involved itself and thereby losing its detached observational vantage point. So in that respect, um, just to, to know, oh, this is the mind that's uh, filled with agitation, or this is the mind that is uh, uh, experiencing uh, sense desire, or this is the, the mind uh, experiencing irritation. So sometimes just to, to name the emotion that's there, to, to, to simply clarify that. And as I was talking before, the Lumpur Sumedha would often encourage a sense of spelling out and uh, amplifying the, the emotional state, like, you know, I hate, I hate Annie. She's an awful person. If she was different, I would be happy. And excuse me for using it front center, easy example. So when you spell out the, the aversion, it, it loses its strength because it's sort of in full, clear awareness. You, it, kind of, it loses its strength because all the lights are on and you can see it. It's ridiculous. It falls apart on its own. So that's one uh, method of, of knowing, uh, uh, simply knowing what the, the hindrance is, sense, desire, ill will, dullness, and so on. Or it might be that uh, some other more specific antidotes are required. Um, he uses this phrase, uh, thereby losing its detached observational vantage point. Uh, I, I have a, a, one of my pet peeves, as they, they say, is that representing mindfulness uh, as a kind of um, a sort of an ab a completely abstracted awareness. Because what happens easily with the effort to develop mindfulness uh, and uh, awareness is that there, there can be a, a, a um, an unconscious aversion. Like I'm just watching, I'm just observing, I'm not, I'm not involved. And there is uh, a kind of disempowering or a, dis, uh, a disengagement, which is, I would say, is very much vibhavatanha, the desire to get rid of. And it's a, a subtle kind of aversion, but it's a sort of a, a, a dissociation and a and a flattening, or what they call a spiritual bypassing, so that uh, there's a, an unconscious sort of denial or aversion, or I'm not involved, I'm just watching, it's just simply that, it's simply a feeling, and it's actually not simply a feeling, <laughs> it's a, a feeling that's being suppressed, or that there's this, that the, the mind is creating a false dissociation, like you're trying to become a, a, a kind of closed circuit TV camera, just sort of, I'm just a data reception unit here, you know, I'm just, I'm just noting. And you're not just noting at all, you're actually suppressing and numbing and, and there's, there's a thing going on, uh, and it's also a self-creation, it's a conceit. But 
because it's disguised as I'm just being I'm just being the detached I'm just the watcher I'm just the 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 uh, just the I'm just being the knower that's all I am uh, because it's got that kind of credential it 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 uh, it's not recognized but that um, and so what can often happen is our own intuitive uh, sense of the right way to relate to a situation or a skillful wise way to relate to something that is perceived or felt is obstructed by the oh, I'm just being mindful I just just I should just watch I should just watch just watch just watch you know and uh, the the sense of your own intuitive wisdom might might be clearly saying get out the way <laughs> do something or um like leave now um that you're you you're kind of obstructing that natural wisdom and your attunement to the the time the place the situation by this idea of oh i should just watch i should just simply note and uh, and so that um that's a negative side effect of of that you know sincere effort to to be mindful to be aware and so i prefer to use the language of unentangled participating rather than being the watcher or the the one who knows which is um a bit of a mouthful but the, that sense of we are intrinsically participating the i and the world i and you we're in this together i'm, I'm a part of the world that i'm experiencing and you can't be a human or have a human birth and be in the 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 kind of uh, the living the life the experiencing the world through the agency of a human life as we do uh without that sense of you know, sharing the same space breathing the same air eating the same food you know being uh in in a, a, a related uh, sense of relationship with the world the physical forms and other beings are around you can't in a way just watch <laughs> and it was interesting uh i was at a conference on mindfulness in in the usa last year in san francisco and this uh, uh research a scientific um researcher um neuro a neuroscience uh researcher called clifford sarin as uh, a professor at uh university of california davis um said uh, you can't meaningfully talk about practicing mindfulness in isolation that uh, and you know he's not a kind of new agey type but uh, he said you 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 we're always existing in a state of relatedness with the environment around us so you can't pretend really or meaningfully talk about i'm just living by myself or i'm being mindful on my own because we affect each other and we are we affect others and others affect us the world affects us and we affect the world all the time and uh we can be oblivious unconscious of that sense of the 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 effect that the world is having on us the the weight of gravity the food that we ate the air that we're breathing the presence of the people around us or the the um the living space we can be unconscious of that but or or, or we can be conscious but uh, it's having its effect regardless so uh certainly uh, that quality of, of non-entanglement is really important but i feel it's it's equally important to recognize that, that non-entanglement is part of a participation it's involved with a, a relatedness a, a, an intrinsic connection that, that we have we share this space uh, that we share the air the earth the the uh, the living environment with each other and that has its effect and so that uh, uh, when we talk about um detached observational vantage point i would encourage to if you uh, to prevent being reborn as a closed circuit tv camera <laughs> which i wouldn't wish on anybody then uh, to consider the the participating side of it and so it, i it's represented very directly in the the qualities of the buddha uh, the, of the nine qualities of the buddha vijja charana sampano is one of the nine qualities of the buddha so vijja means aware or awake knowledge knowing uh charana means conduct literally means to walk or to to go so vijja charana sampano means uh, perfect in knowledge and and uh, conduct or uh as usually how it's translated but you can also 
see that the, it's representing these two sides of the 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 awakened being that the as I was reading in that passage from the Agivacha Gota Sutta, yeah, the, the Buddha has you know the Buddha mind can't be represented or can't it has has abandoned uh, is liberated from being reckoned in terms of form or feeling so that there is a totally transcendent quality that aspect of vidya or knowing is totally transcendent it's completely beyond totally unentangled but its partner is 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 totally imminent is is its partner is the the charana is the conduct so the vidya is not like totally spaced out vidya it's not like a a totally disconnected, spaced out, um, so long, you know, so long suckers, you know, it's all impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, I don't really care about you guys. I'm gone, I'm gone. You know. It's not a kind of foolish transcendence or disconnected, but it's a transcendence that's totally connected with, with the imminent uh, nature of the material world and the, the sense experience. So you have vijja and charana as a as a unit, They're like two sides of the same coin. Is that totally liberated, uh, totally transcendent, but totally immanent? And so, if you emphasize the vijja and forget the charana, then you end up being spaced out or disconnected and um, living unskillfully. Um, and uh, but if if you uh, obsess on the charana and you forget the vijja. Then you get too sort of fussy and anxious and identified with the body and the personality, so that the the Buddha uh, principle, if you like, the that archetype, is a is the perfect uh, in, in balance and embodiment of vijja and charana of the imminent and the transcendent, the totally um, totally present and totally gone. Also in the word tathagata. It means thus gone and thus come, totally present and totally, uh, totally gone, so totally absent. <laughs> yes. Is the thing sometimes we need to suppress instead of watching? So, in the mindfulness practice, um, when something comes, so sometimes we need to suppress as well. Ah, uh, well, not suppress, but sometimes it's it's useful to close the door or say, uh, a feeling is strong, just say. I'm not going to follow that, but uh, it's uh, suppression. Just usually leads to explosion. So suppression doesn't usually uh, help, but sometimes just to recognize this is a very strong feeling, <laughs> but to to mindfully close the door on it is appropriate. Or to you know, act vigorously, leave now. Don't say anything. Go. <laughs> so we have to sometimes act forcefully. But suppression usually leads uh, to explosion later on. And when we close the door, it's also suppression, isn't it? Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be. It's like, no, I'm just choosing not to go through that door. So it's uh, the the way of recognizing um, the different states as. uh, um, Like the the way of recognizing, okay, there is. Intense anger or, or great desire, or the the mind is really restless. Um, then, the, uh, along with simply knowing that state, then the, the Buddha also the teachings encourage different ways of counteracting that. And so, as he's um, speaking about there, there's a, a in a discourse that the Buddha gave to Megia, who was a a monk who um, the Buddha thought he was. Um, not quite ready to go off and practice by himself, but Megia thought, "I'm fine. I'm great. I, I, I want to go to the off to the forest, and I'm going to re- realize enlightenment today." And um, he went off to to go and meditate in this mango grove, and and his mind was ended up being filled with all kinds of agitated and afflictive thoughts and feelings. And so he came back to the Buddha at the end of the day and said, "You were right, venerable <laughs> sir." And then. Uh, the Buddha gives him uh, a lot of very useful advice, and at the end of the, this uh, helpful advice, this is in the Udana um, section four. I think this is called the Megiya Sutta, Sutta number one. And the Buddha says, uh, "The unattractive aspect of the body should be maintained in being for the purpose of abandoning lust. 
Loving-kindness should be maintained in being for the purpose of abandoning ill-will. Mindfulness of breathing um, should be maintained in being for the purpose of cutting off discursive thoughts. Perception of impermanence should be maintained for the purpose of eliminating the conceit I am. For when a person perceives impermanence, perception of not-self becomes established in him. And when a person perceives not-self, he arrives at the elimination of conceit I am, and that is Nibbana here and now. So just there, that, that little um, sort of uh, advice to Megia uh, um, sort of gives a, a, a handy list of the way to deal with uh, aversion and a sense desire and, uh, and distracted thinking. But there are also uh, other aspects of that that he speaks about here. So he goes into a description about working with sense desire to some uh, quite extensively here. Clearly recognizing the conditions for the arising of a particular hindrance not only forms the basis for its removal, but also leads to an appreciation of the general pattern of its arising. Such appreciation lays bare the levels of conditioning and misperceptions that cause the arising of a hindrance and thereby contributes to preventing its recurrence. Sustained observation will reveal the fact that frequently thinking or dwelling on a particular issue produces a corresponding mental inclination and thus a tendency to get caught up in ever more thoughts and associations along the same lines. And that's a, a, a point the Buddha makes in the um, Sutta number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the two kinds of thinking. And he makes this very simple statement that uh, whatever the mind, whatever thoughts the mind dwells upon, that will be its uh, inclination in the future. It's kind of obvious. Like you, you, you wear a rut, you keep thinking about things in a particular way, and that's the, the rut that the mind will go down. Also, the neuroscientists can you know, actually measure the parts of the brain that get developed by following particular patterns of, of thought. You can actually see like, uh, London taxi drivers have a particularly expanded part of their brain that deals with uh, uh, memory for spatial relations. Um, and um, or, or on another level, um, as they say, when a pickpocket meets, this, meets a saint, all they see is pockets. <laughs> Follow that? So when a pickpocket... I know English isn't the first language of everyone here. So when a, someone who is a thief who steals things out of people's pockets, when they meet a holy person, when they meet a saint, what they see is the pockets. Because that's what they're after. They're like, oh, there's an opportunity. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a very lustful type, you come into a room and you see, you kind of scan the room for sexual opportunities. Okay, who's attractive, who's not, who's interesting, who's not. Where's the competition? <laughs> yeah. If you are a clothing designer... Think, oh, that's a nice jacket. Where did he get that from? Uh, I like the collar. Yeah, right. And doesn't quite notice whether it's a, a man or a woman, or, but it's just seeing the, the clothing. So um, if you're a monastic, you notice the people with the shaved heads and, and uh, the robes and the, the other lot. The, you know, so you're what you, you fill the mind with, that's what you, you, uh, you, you create the world through the habits of perception and whatever the mind frequently dwells on that becomes its its inclination in the case of sensual desire karma chanda for example it will become evident that its arising is due not only to outer objects but also to an inclination towards sensuality embedded within one's own mind this sensual tendency in influences the way one perceives outer objects and thence leads to the full-blown arising of desire and various attempts to satisfy this desire. The particular dynamic of sensual desire is such that every time a sensual desire is gratified, the act of gratification fuels ever stronger subsequent manifestations of the same desire. With detached observation, it will become apparent that gratification of sensual desires is based on a misconception, on searching for pleasure in the wrong place. As the Buddha pointed out, 
The way to inner peace and composure necessarily depends on gaining independence from this vortex, this kind of whirlpool of desire and gratification. So if you incline the mind towards, uh, say, finding satisfaction or gratification through uh, chasing after particular sense objects, desirable uh, desirable persons, then um, if you keep doing that, then everywhere you go, you'll, that's how you'll be measuring other people, and the mind will be continually caught in that in that vortex, that same kind of um, urge for gratification. Um, and so, uh, in extreme extreme cases, this leads to sort of endless uh, numbers of romantic partners, speed dating. I've heard about. <laughs> She sounds like a kind of particularly nasty sort of torture, <laughs> having sort of fifteen-second relationships with people around a room. It's like a kind of, it's the sort of thing that you, you know, Franz Kafka and Jean-Paul Sartre got together over a bottle of absinthe and decided, how can we make hell really nasty? <laughs> oh, I know. How about speed dating? Or, or um, they, or um, the kind of, what was it? Someone was talking about the. Um, uh, like uh, dating apps on, a, on an iPhone where you're kind of scanning for, for desirable people and you kind of, oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's a good one. And swipe, having, having your picture swiped or being, finding out how many people find you desirable and whether you want to pick up with them or not. It's a sort of particular uh, sort of cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> that people inflict upon themselves. But, you know, the, this is one of the, the aspects of of technology and life is that uh, ever more uh, speedy and convenient ways to gratify desire but then of course it never really reaches an end which is the point he's making here that just you gratify desire more and more uh, repeatedly more and more effectively and you just raise the level of, uh, which you uh, you need to um, keep following that desire to create any kind of, uh, of effect as he says, the Buddha pointed out the way to inner peace and composure necessarily depends on gaining independence from this vortex of desire and gratification. So that a vortex is like a whirlpool, a whirlwind, so that um, the uh, the more that you get absorbed into it, then the, the, the more the mind gets caught in that, that system. But then, say, leaving the vortex, getting around to the edges, then you realize, what the heck was I doing there? <laughs> what was all that about? That, uh, uh, what, why was that so compelling or so powerful? What was, why was that so important? <sighs> a passage in the Anguttara Nikaya offers an intriguing psychological analysis of the underlying causes of sensual desire. According to this discourse, the search for satisfaction through a partner of the other gender is related to one's own identification with the characteristics and behavior of one's own gender. That is, to search for union externally implies that one is still caught up in the limitations of one's own gender identity. This shows that the effective investment inherent in identifying with one's gender role and behavior forms an important link in the arising of sensual desire. In contrast, arahants, who have eradicated even the subtlest traces of identification are unable to engage in sexual intercourse. Uh, I would suggest that that, uh, that analysis is, or doesn't really take into account people who are attracted to their own gender, or both genders, <laughs> or don't uh, have a much of an identification with, their own, with a gender of any particular sort. Again, going to the, the realm of technology, I believe that, uh, I think it was Facebook, has 27 different ways that you can define your own gender which is an interesting concept when I said I told this to Ajahn Vimalo he sort of gave me a look 27 <laughs> like I thought there was only two <laughs> <laughs> but you can be um, gender free gender fluid you can be um, a gay man identifying as a uh, a female trapped in a male body uh, you can be you know i mean it's it really there are literally there are 27 different ways you can you can specify your gender um uh, uh orientation and uh, and probably there's uh, 
since I saw that figure six months ago, there's probably quite a few more have been hatched. Uh, extraordinary um, kind of complex uh, structures. But anyway, uh, I think it's it's a fair enough point that um, that uh, the the more you identify with your own body and sakayaditi, that sense of, of I am this body, I am this personality, the more that makes you interested and in, uh, say inclined towards engaging with others to uh, say answer that feeling of uh, incompleteness. Hmm? Um, the one, well, the uh, uh, the one in the Anguttara, uh, I didn't, I didn't look that one up. Um, it's yeah, I can, uh, I can look it up for tomorrow. It's, it gives it, the, it gives the the sort of um, the the kind of library reference. It doesn't give you the, the actual sort of easy. Easily referred to suitor number, but I'll, I'll fish it out tomorrow. But the the passage where it says uh, uh, arahants are incapable of sexual intercourse, that's in the Diganikaya, that's in the Pasadika, the the delightful discourse. And it says how uh, uh, an arahant is incapable of taking the life of another living being. They're incapable of stealing. They're incapable of sexual intercourse. They're incapable of, of storing up um, uh, possessions to uh, and to, uh, and such like. So that uh, that's the Sutta number 29, I think. The Pasadika, the delightful discourse. Yeah, it's uh, Diganikaya Sutta number 29, uh, paragraph 26, if you're interested. Pasadika Sutta. So I'll just read a little bit more on this for the moment. Just as the arising of sensual desire can be analyzed in terms of its psychological underpinnings, so too the absence of sensual desire depends on an intelligent management of the same psychological mechanisms. Once one has at least temporarily escaped from the vicious circle of continuous demands for satisfaction, it becomes possible to develop some form of counterbalance in one's perceptual appraisal. If excessively dwelling on aspects of external beauty has led to frequent states of lust, contemplation directed towards the less appealing aspects of the body can lead to a progressive decrease in such states of mind. Examples for such counterbalancing can be found among the Satipatthana meditation practices. In particular, the contemplations of the anatomical constitution of the body and of a decaying corpse. In addition to these, Restraint of the senses, moderation with food, wakefulness, and awareness of the impermanent nature of all mental events are helpful measures in order to prevent the arising of sensual desire. Similar approaches are appropriate for the other hindrances, in each case entailing the establishment of some form of counterbalance to the conditions that tend to stimulate the arising of the hindrance. In the case of aversion, viapada, often the irritating or repulsive feature of a phenomena has received undue attention. A direct antidote to such one-sided perception is to ignore the negative qualities of whoever is causing one's irritation and to pay attention instead to whatever positive qualities can be found in him or her. By no longer paying attention to the matter or by reflecting on the inevitability of karmic retribution, it becomes possible to develop equanimity. So, uh, if you are, if you are, say, feeling aversion to the person in the next room, or person sitting next to you, uh, uh, just annoyed by the the way they walk, or the way they eat, or the, just the way they breathe, then just to uh, to to notice that, um, uh, say that that irritated feeling, and say, well, you know, it is. An, I am feeling annoyed about the way that they eat. But this is also a person who's come to stay in a Buddhist monastery. They are they have taken refuge in the triple gem just like me. They are trying to live their life in a in a skillful way. They're not 
sitting there eating in that irritating way simply because they know it annoys me. <laughs> they might be completely unaware that I have a particular pe uh, pet peeve about you know, about uh, <clears throat> eating lettuce in that particular way. But how would they know that? I've got a lettuce problem. They'd have to be psychic to realize that. So it's uh, it's my issue that uh, I feel annoyance with, with that and uh, I should not dwell upon that particular way they do that, but instead I should uh, maybe think about all, all the noble intentions that they have in coming to, to stay in this place with me, that kind of thing. So just uh, uh, go on a little bit more about um, aversion. An important remedy for a tendency to anger and aversion is the development of loving-kindness, metta. According to the discourses, developing loving-kindness helps to establish harmonious relations, not only towards other human beings, but also towards non-human beings. In the present context, the concept of non-human beings can also be understood in a psychological way as, representative, as representing subjective psychological disorders like having loving-kindness for your own jealousy, your own fear, your own lettuce fetish. The development of loving-kindness indeed counteracts pathological feelings of alienation and low self-esteem, and thereby provides an important foundation for successful insight meditation. So having loving-kindness for your own, uh, uh, say, your own jealousy, your own fear, your own self-hatred, just to... Uh, be able to accept and to acknowledge those qualities. Loving-kindness not only provides the proper pre preparatory ground for the practice of insight meditation, but it can also directly contribute to realization. According to the Buddha, the distinctive character of loving-kindness meditation as taught by him lies in combining it with the awakening factors, the seven factors of enlightenment. In this way, directly harnessing loving-kindness to the progress towards realization. Several discourses relate the practice of loving-kindness in particular to progress from the stage of stream entry to that of non-returning. Clearly, the advantages of developing loving-kindness are not confined to its function as an antidote to anger and irritation. So that's another aspect uh, that also I like to emphasize about metta is that uh, it's really a prerequisite for any kind of concentration, any kind of insight. So it's not just a, a way of counteracting uh, uh, irritation and uh, negativity uh, towards others, or, uh, but rather it's, uh, it's like it creates a foundation uh, uh, to, uh, to all kinds of spiritual um, development. And so as he points out, that, uh, that it's uh, a direct support for, for the development from stream entry to to anagami and also <coughs> the um, uh, the the overall progress towards realization. So I think that's enough for today. Any final questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. You mentioned uh, arrogant, uh, can't have sex, and all those things. Um, so you're living with a partner or something. That's not. It's not off the chart. It's always in the chart. So, what is the suggestion for people who are like that? Arahants who happen to be married? Uh, it's kind of a rare problem. <laughs> <laughs> and so, if, if one needs some advice, I'm sure they'll come and ask. <laughs> Arjun? Yes? Buddha was married. Hmm? Buddha was married. Yeah. But before he became an arahant. Did he get divorced? Well, Princess Yashodra is referred to as his former wife. So they probably didn't have divorce procedures <laughs> as we do nowadays. But uh, it's, uh, um, it's not obligatory if you go into robes to have a divorce. Like Ajahn Vimala is still married. He frequently talks about his wife. But Buddha worked out, Buddha worked out why didn't they come to a compromise together? Like, I suppose, and I've heard that in a lot of Indian families, when they get to a certain age, that the couple 
concentrate more on a spiritual life. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite uh, uh, at the age of sixty. Like they have these what they call the four stages of life: karma, ar- uh, artha, dharma, moksha. Uh, when uh, to the first twenty years, second twenty years, third twenty years, and fourth uh, twenty years. So when you're sixty, then that's the time when moksha, liberation, becomes the focus. And so it's, it's not uncommon for couples to live in a brahmacharya relationship, to give up having sex with each other and just to live a brahmacharya life in each other's company. So that, that's quite uh, quite normal. It, with the with the, the Buddha and Princess Yashodara, you know, she did. Uh, become a, a, a nun and become an arahant. So that also is a different kind of relationship. That uh, and, and his son Rahula, similarly, he became the first novice and also became an arahant. Okay, that's enough for today.